Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. So, if you're comfortable going on to chapter four, this is an we important are. one, I think, because it talks about the six key elements of strategic selling. The first one, buying influencers. Now, we can't spend too much time talking about buying influencers here because it is covered in a later chapter. But I think what Miller Hyman does brilliantly and elegantly is really defines the different influencers different contacts have on the sale itself. Yes, they do. Are they still, uh, the ones that they define, are they still as relevant now as they were then? 100%. 100%, I think. Economic buyer, technical buyer, user buyer. So so I've got to ask this to Steve, actually, because I'm interested in his response. Because I know, (laughs) I can see it. So I hear very often in public sector, yeah, there's not one decision maker, Mike. It's just not like that. I'm bloody sure that there's one person who's more important than everybody else, just no one dare admit it. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly. But I think that's, isn't that true of any group? And, yeah. uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's down at the golf or whatever. You know, with any group, any decision-making going on, even, you know, six lads deciding what pub they're going to go to on a Friday night. Yes, everyone gets a say. Ultimately, there'll be one, two, probably one person who ultimately you convince them everyone else will go along with it. And I think that is probably true. So I, I think, you know, when I read this, like, well, there's, there's one. Yes, there is. There were probably a number of people that form that group. But within that, some people will be more important than others. Absolutely. What, what's important, actually, is to remember when you're reading this, is they're talking about the buying influencers on the street on the single sales objective. Yeah. And that so each that, single sales objective could have a completely different subset yeah. of buying yeah. influences. I also yeah. think this is a brilliant part of it. Red flags and leveraging from strength. You referring to your blue sheet, Johnny, I don't know, you know which one you pulled out, whatever it was, but there will have been red flags on it where you didn't have information. That process of sitting there, adding red flags to your sale for the single sales uh, objective Super duper important, I think. And again, well, it's discussed in great detail in the book. I, I was on. gutted that you cannot now buy. I, I, I thought, when I went back to the book, I thought, right, I'm going to go out and buy some blue sheets. Yeah, you can't buy them. some stickers. You can't buy it now. And that's because actually, if you look on Miller Hyman's website, they're, they're in the software business now. What they really want you to buy is their CRM tool that is that in reality they're in the business of being a sales force and dynamics partner um more than anything else and it's a real shame because actually yeah, i agree the, the ability to sit at home with a blue sheet and mark red flags and strength little little dumbbell strengths stickers uh, on your yeah, blue yeah. sheet as you work through a deal doing uh, particularly on a bigger complex deal is a very powerful process i think i agree I, I think one of the ways you might be able to get around that, um, I've not used this because I've like you, Johnny, I've, I've been an Evernote user over time, but Microsoft uh, OneNote 
where you can have kind of books and then different sections and tabs so you could almost make it three-dimensional i think that might lend itself quite well to this and i found myself thinking that when i was reading through thinking i might have to dig out microsoft OneNote and start thinking about how to, to use this again but in the meantime you know good old tabs. <laughs> yeah. stickers red you could just use red and blue stickers and, and i'll tell you now uh, um michael and i don't have an old excel version of a blue sheet that if anybody wanted that you couldn't have because we wouldn't ever dream of sharing that IP. I've got one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then the other elements, response modes, discussed well, win results. That's an important chapter, win results. I think that's a very difficult one to understand. Oh, no, I, I think they're all killer. I think each one of these I'm not is knocking it, but I think, I think win results is hard to understand. Ideal customer profile. And the sales funnel, and actually this chapter is just a prelim to the other chapters that we're yes. going to discuss, so there's not so much to it So let's start really. with key element number one, which is... I think we're going to discuss this later, Johnny, in real detail. Chapter five, key element number one, buying influences. All right, so we're just rocking through all the parts in one big go. Yeah, absolutely. Right, okay, cool. So, it, so what they're saying is there are different types of, of people that influence the outcome of your deal. So you've got the economic buyer, yeah, you've got the user buyer. You've got the technical buyer. And what else have you got? The coach. They're the key people that influence the outcome of a deal, according to the book. And my, my first question is, is the economic buyer still as relevant? The one person that gives the approval to buy. I mean, Steve, you seem very emphatic it was that there's always one person who's got more influence than others. I spend a lot of time dealing with sales guys in the healthcare market. And I've noticed in healthcare, particularly in technology, the whole system is rigged to stop people selling. It's, it's literally designed to take salesmanship out of the game. Now, actually, companies are adapting. It's funny how as human beings, we're evolutionary creatures and we adapt to things. What's happening in, in the healthcare market is companies are adapting so that they can sell solutions that sit underneath the rules <laughs> and they can transact. So a lot of the companies that are doing really, really well in med tech at the moment, they've got solutions that are sold as a on a per transactional basis, not even as a service. I've got one client at the moment, they sell a solution. It's free. It's a massive product, but it's free. And then they just take a little, I think they take like 50p per transaction. So it just gets around all of that whole tendering and procurement process. But normally, in, if I was to sell a million quids worth of software into a healthcare environment, there is very rarely, I, I don't believe there is an economic buyer. Procurement, I'd say, yeah, potentially economic buyer. It's an interesting point. If you look generally, whether whether it's one individual, you know, we go back to that point we made slightly earlier around um, there may be a group of people who are involved, a group of people who you would sit in that economic buy. You might do I if I sell to one person, does that nail the deal? No. Is there one person who's probably ultimately more important than the others part of that? Yes. But I, I look at that and I read that from an economic buyer. There's a group of people I would put under the economic buyer tag if you like to a certain degree but somewhere in that there will probably be the individual that if i if i crack them i 
the, the rest of the, the you know the rest of the dominoes will fall in my favour. The economic value. I mean, I agree with you hundred percent. There's always some person that's more important than everybody else. Every almost, single almost, walk of life, every single sale. I think Steve pointed it out earlier. It's almost like an alpha buyer, isn't it? Well, it's different, isn't it? There's always an alpha personality that just has a bit more influence than everyone else. What is interesting, though, on page 58, they do say, one clarification, the role of an economic buyer may be played by a board, a selection committee, or another decision-making body acting as a single within the group. Which poo-poos my point about healthcare. Yeah, but I don't think it does. I think, uh, I don't know. We could talk about it for ages, but then he talk, then they talk about finding the economic buyer. Um, and it's very interesting. They talk, they talk about the word value and, you know, the monetary uh, impact and, and those, different, uh, those different parts. So I guess, Paul, you'll have sold to big companies and little companies. Mm-hmm. I suspect £5,000 to a little company is a more strategic sale than £50,000 to Ford which is their example. Absolutely. <clears throat> I Fair think... It's all right. I don't call me Parky for nothing. <laughs> what, what, what do you want to say? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but the, the talk of finding the economic buyer is interesting. How easy would you say it is to really pinpoint an economic buyer in a new account? Um... <sighs> It depends. I think on the face of it, it's relatively easy. But uh, one of the things I've kind of jotted down here was that all too many people go after what they think is an economic buy and think, right, that's where I'm going to go. And kind of, okay, I'll pay up service to these guys, but that's where I'm going to go. And and the thing I liked about this book is that it, it seemed to hint that actually the economic buyer, whilst important, isn't necessarily going to win you the piece of business or often maybe not. And, and, and there's lots of different sub certain examples within this. And if you look at CIO 100, so it's, it's CIO.co.uk, whatever it is, uh, go Google it. You look in there and look at some of the older interviews. They've not done it for the last couple of years, but 2017, 2018, you look at these CIOs and what they're talking about and they look at their peer group and they look at their colleagues first and second in, in different order, then the analysts, and then we snake oilers. So what that should tell anybody is that that is a ringing endorsement of this in so much as you absolutely have to get consensus with their team. I can think of several CIOs that I've dealt with, and they'll point me back to their guy and say, go go chat with him, and if they're happy, I'm happy. And, and, and then they'll rubber stamp it. Uh, and I've seen that in other sales literature as well. So I think, yes, the economic buyer, the person who's ultimately going to sign the check or sign the order, absolutely need to identify them. But I think what's more important is to understand the political landscape underneath them and who their guy is. Okay. Yeah. So, so, what's so great I... is that, may I, Mike, that they, yeah, of where, where, the, where this takes us is they're, they're encouraging you and you get to an exercise. In each chapter, there's a little workshop. So in this one, there's a personal workshop to buying influences. And what they're saying is you've got to sit down now and look at, okay, who are you buying influences in your account? Now, what's fascinating me is I'd love to know how many salespeople are out there today sitting down, looking at a pipeline item and saying, right, let's just look at everybody that's involved in this procurement. Who signs the checks? Who's the technical buyer? Who's the user buyer? 
Sorry, sorry, Paul. I think there's a reason for that, though, Johnny. I think you guys, you were touching on it earlier, which is the SaaS sales and the puppy dog sale. Because there's that presumption, assumption that, you know, if they like it, they'll buy it. And I'm, I'm talking to you know, CIO or whomever. That's it. So the whether it's general laziness of the, you know, the majority, the 820 rule, or whether it's as uh, it's symptomatic of our climate currently and the, the growth and growth of SaaS sales, I would say majoritively most don't. And they're probably the reasons why, what you hinted at earlier, because they're just, if they're like, yeah. they buy it. And how many sales leaders are actually sitting down with a salesperson saying, okay, let's do a pipeline review. This deal here, what's it worth? A quarter of a million. Right. How, how likely do you think it is to come in? X. What day is it coming in? I don't know. Why? Okay. Let's have a look at who's involved in the deal. Who's the economic buyer? I don't know. Why? I wonder how much of that's still going on. Lots. Is it? Yep. I, won- I wonder. Well, we've got the people here, Johnny. So yeah, they're okay. saying lots, but they are fans of the book club. So then, <laughs> chapter six, we talk about the the key element two, second element of them, red flags and leveraging from strength. Really now, good. This. Yeah, brilliant. And to be clear, red flag is a something where the client has an issue with you. But I also like the fact that you're adding a red flag when you don't have information. Yeah, I think that's very important. Uncertainty, missing information, any uncontacted buying influence, any buying influence new to the job, reorganization, they're all, uh, they're all red flags. So anything you're uncertain about, are you sure? Uh, no, I'm not sure. Right, it's a red flag. All right, yeah, we often do an interesting exercise, uh, some, something similar to some of the workshops actually in the book where you, know, you give people a bit of a qualification framework. You go, right, if you're going to win the business, this is the kind of things you need to understand. Talk me through a deal now. And it's a bit like you know, a sales manager would do, do a pipeline with you. And it's, it never amazed me the number of people say, yeah, I've got this deal. It's two thirds of the way through. I reckon it's going to close next month. And then you look at some of the really basic information, just as you've said, and it's amazing how often there's gaps. You give them a simple template to fill out and the number of gaps and you go straight away, well, how can you forecast that for, for coming in four weeks? You don't even know that. You don't even know if you're up against company competition you don't even know what the drivers are for the different individuals you're telling me there's only two people involved in this decision making yet it's it's a really big deal you know straight away and i think the discipline of going back to that is um i wouldn't say it's been lost i think for for some salespeople, it's never been there they've never had that discipline yes Um, never had it don't go through it and therefore, the first time you give them a framework and you take them through it, and they're often amazed themselves how, you know, I, I thought I really understood this account or I really thought I really understood this opportunity. And you give me a simple template to complete and I realize half of it I can't do without guessing. And that, that for me, I think is the biggest eye opener. And if I'd say for anybody, get the book, do a couple of those exercises around a, an opportunity you're working on. Yeah. And it would be worth buying the book just to be able to do that and go, wow, I really thought I understood this opportunity. And actually, I probably know 50% of the basics that I need to know to get it over the line. I agree. It's so sobering, isn't it? Mm. If not a bit depressing, usually. Um, but well, I have to turn it uplifting and go, well, actually, <laughs> now you've opened that up. The great thing is you've got people who are speaking to you. You've got a customer who's, you know, and, and people who are willing to pick up the phone. 
you now know what questions to ask. You've now got a reason to pick yeah. up the phone to that client and go, right, I need to have a conversation with you because there's a few bits and pieces I'm missing here. So, you know, you turn it back around and go, yes, it should be depressing and sobering for about 30 seconds. And then suddenly it should be, well, that's my call to action. I've got a lot of questions to ask here. And what's brilliant is often you're going back to a client with information that you're missing. You don't get the information and you realize, hold on a minute, this client's not as on my side as I thought they were. Mm. So I'm going to qualify out and you're qualifying out of deals that you could have ended up spending a lot of time on yeah. demo time, pre-sales time that you didn't need to spend time on. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it is good. I, I think that it, the, the beauty of the concept is it just gives you accurate positioning or at least a much better understanding of your positioning in a deal, doesn't it? And then they talk about the strengths. So you've got different types of strengths, an area of differentiation, something that improves your position. Some, it has to be relevant to your current sales objective. And then what they're saying is you focus on leveraging your strengths with your client and eliminating your red flags, and that should get you closer to your deal. And that's a simple process, isn't it, really? Very much I so, love yeah. it. I love it's it. Brilliant, yeah. Not much to talk about in Chapter 7, I didn't think, given it was no, only two No, I thought that was the worst well. chapter in the book, given that it was only a page and a half as well. Yeah, yeah, I didn't really explain it. I think Chapter 8 is a beauty, and for those people listening, Chapter 8 talks about the different response modes that somebody is in. It's a game changer uh, for me, this. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wrote Gap Selling Anyone. Have <laughs> you read oh, Gap Keenan's Selling? Gap Selling. Because uh, I just thought, ah, is this where he got his inspiration from for the uh, closing the gap? Possibly, yeah. possibly. I, I quite like that book, actually. Yeah, growth, trouble, or even keel, or overconfident are the four key ones they've got, aren't they? So what they're saying is they are modes that a buyer can be in. Do you want to just extrapolate on that a little bit, Mike? Yeah, so, so it talks about your current state where you are. Um, are you happy with your current state, be that productivity, be it earnings, be it, you know, whatever? Um, or... Are you, or are you in trouble? So for me, in terms of recruitment, are you not earning enough money or are you behind target as a client? For Paul, I suspect it's something to be getting attacked by a billion different people because they're all working from home, et cetera, et cetera. And it talks about your current state uh, and your desired state and whether there's a disparity between the two and how the salesperson can use it. Yeah. Uh, yeah absolutely. The chapter for you. Uh, you have, and, and it goes a little bit deeper. It talks about, Customers that, for example, are in trouble mode, trouble mode is a really good customer to sell to. If they've got a problem, a pain, uh, if they're in, you know, in real trouble and you've got a solution that can help, that's a really good deal. And it, it, it informs a lot of your selling methodology, as does growth mode. Now, Mike and I often talk about this with recruitment, don't we? Yes. Well, I, you know, I was just going to talk to Paul about it on a slightly different level for me, which is, let's say, Paul... You've got a business that's got one office and they're growing and they're going to get a second office. They are in growth mode, but surely their purchase is trouble mode purchase. What, insecurity? Yeah. You see, I, it's funny you should say that because I put a, a little sticker on here saying, Starbucks sales lives here perhaps. And I looked at that and thought about it and thought again, but... I think in cyber security, or if based security, as we all thought we used to call it, the 
trouble usually comes after a, a bad event has happened. And that's when it's like trying to sell. I use the analogy of uh, insurance. It's everybody's third party fire and thefts. So they can buy a radio for their Opal Manta or their Sermar <laughs> Player or, or, or whatever. And then you stuck the car. It's a pile of bolts in your parents' drive. Um, and even with the flashy radio, so you think, shit, I should have gone fully calm because I've got to fix this damn thing now. And so you still do it begrudgingly. And, and, and that's sometimes an analogy to put to cybersecurity. So, yes, I get the urgency of trouble. And, and yes, to your example, I can see why you might pigeonhole it that and, and sell that. But I think people have become a little um, almost resistant and impervious to the FUD selling or what they perceive as FUD in that trouble, certainly where cyber is concerned, because there's everything scary, scary at the minute. So what, what's really scary? Um, yeah, I would imagine okay. in security, people have probably almost got fear fatigue. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. It just it just comes noise. So I'd probably come at it from a growth perspective rather than from a trouble. Just because from experience, I can tell you that selling to trouble can be a little bit tricky at times. Go on, Steve. I think they're two sides of the same coin. And, you know, if, if I think about the people I deal with a lot, typically like sales directors, for example, you go, well, um, growth in growth mode, well, I've just been set a, a target. I've got to increase my revenue by 15% next year across my team. Is that growth or is that trouble? Because suddenly on the trouble side, I've now got to increase my revenue by 15% across that team. So for me, it, it's, you know, the two come line line. And I think the same goes for your production manager, your CIO or whatever. You know, there are certain targets that they've got to hit. Those targets usually get more stringent every year. And it might be around cost savings, it might be around efficiency, it might be around productivity or sustainability or all these, whatever that target is, if I've been set a target to hit, I've got both growth and trouble problems. Uh, yes, I'm trying to grow. Yes, I'm looking forward to the rewards of hitting that target, but I've also got trouble if I fall off track from it. So, you know, when I was reading that, I was going, they're two sides of the same coin. And actually, to, to Paul's point, I think... You know, you use both of them in, in in equal measure when you're having that conversation. It's, it's it's look at the benefits, but look at what happens if we don't. I have a little question for the floor here, guys. Um, they talk about even keel and overconfident, and we've the, in the last episode of Book Club or the last few episodes of Book Club, Mike and I covered um, Challenger Sale, lost the will to live, but we did cover it, and. Um, What's interesting is in Miller Hyman, what they're saying is customer that's overconfident, you aren't going to really make any money. In Challenger, what they're saying is that you would go to an overconfident customer and you would challenge their format and their way of thinking to the point at which they realize that there was an alternative way of thinking. And I just can't quite, I actually think Miller Hyman are right. My view is if customer doesn't think anything's broke, if it's not broke, don't fix it. People don't fix broken things. Um, I think that Miller Hyman are right. A good salesman just thinks that hey, they're not in a place. They're not. There's there's nothing going down here. Move on. I I agree with you to a point there, Johnny. Um, and I think what what I took from that, I I wrote Challenger actually, literally. Did you? But, uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Question mark because I thought. It's interesting. I, I was always amused. We, we, we talked about this, why, why you pan challenger. 
I think where that could come to play, and I'm just reminding myself of, of this section here, is that to try and take that even keel or overconfidence head on, you're on a losing mission. No, no question. Completely agree. Um, it, I seem to recall it was alluding to how you could try and leverage uh, or, or prick that conscience a little bit by leveraging other people within the organization to turn that even keel into growth or into trouble. Because to me, the general premise of Challenger, and it was, it was more of a theory rather than a workbook and a methodology, uh, if, if, I, if I was going to assess it, is you're trying to get somebody to go, oh, I've not thought about it like that. Oh, okay. And, and all of a sudden, you, you, you disrupted that status quo. So... I think there is a place for it, but I think you don't expend energy yourself in that because you're a sales guy or gal, as if they're going to listen to you, right? You've got to think, how can I get the people around them in that buying group to prick that consciousness and to, to flip that even keel or overconfidence into something resembling trouble or growth? That's my point. Okay. But if you had a pipeline... Point if you, like that. Okay. So, but where it leads me is you've got, 20 items on a pipeline spreadsheet. Let's just say we're still using Excel for pipeline management. You've got 20 items and client one is in trouble mode. Client two is in trouble mode. Client three is in uh, um, even keel mode. Client four is in overconfident. And then you have to categorize priority deals to go at. Surely you're still going to prioritize the overconfident client lower than the client that's in trouble mode of course right and, that, and that's really where it took me is I, I think if you had nothing better to do with your time you'd go at the client that was overconfident wouldn't you? you'd think do you know what there's maybe a strategy here i think they've got more trouble than they think they've got mm-hmm. surely if, if uh, the smart play is right this client over here they've, they've had the information commissioner crawling all over the place i think i'll go and sell them something Sorry, I was just about to say, it's effort versus reward. Um, and, you know, in that case, you know that, yes, can, can you turn around a, an overconfident client? Yes, you can. Does it take a lot of effort? Yes, it does. Is the reward worth it when there's perhaps lower hanging fruit uh, within that pipeline? So that, that's what it was come back to. Yes, of course you can, but back yeah. to those priorities. What and again, the the yeah, I think reward? that's a very fair comment. And I think they then go into, again, there's a really cool little, they, they call it personal workshop of looking at each of the of your deals you've got on the go and they encourage you to go through them. Can I just, just while I'm back a second on it, I, I even put a, uh, sorry, in the section killing the messenger. Yeah. I, uh, the ancient Greeks talking about uh, messengers who brought a king bad news are sometimes put to death. Uh, we can think of many sales situations in which an overeager, honestly smitten salesperson ruined his or her company chances by uh, badging an uncorrupted buyer to facing facts. You do this all the time. Me? <laughs> you sense it. Yes. You, you give the blunt reality, and I think uh, you've, you've been qualified. I, I just thought yeah. I'd be straight away with that one. I just thought it really tickled Well, me. I did that. <laughs> I, I put a post on LinkedIn about that yesterday about <laughs> Or I, I, exactly. I, I, I told the truth whether whether it's um whether it was really what he wanted to hear but that that's what makes you the challenger isn't it, it from them from their mindset is the, the truth is a nice segue into chapter nine actually because in here they're talking about the win-lose matrix didn't like this chapter mike yeah. 
I'll tell you why. It's a difficult one. Because as try as hard as you might, in a sale, somebody has to acquiesce to the other, I think. Oh, that's so, very Jordan Belfort, Mike. Somebody just wins a little bit more than the other. It's very, very rare. Boiler room it's an in even every exchange. Sa- it, it, what do they say? In every interaction, a sale is made. Yes, correct. You buy from them or they I, buy from you. Or, or, or they sell to you while they're not going to buy from you. Ooh, or my. do you reckon floor? Can you actually truly win-win? Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, yes. Yes. So let's answer me this then, Paul, as an example. Last deal you closed. It was with, I don't know, an SPCC. And you made 20% margin on that deal. Mm-hmm. And you got paid some money and all the rest of it. You won more than them because you made margin. For you both to win, you'd have made no margin. You'd have made just enough money for the company to make profit, to pay you for the suppliers to get theirs. But you won more than them. That's how capitalism exists. Ah, capitalism exists because one person wins more than another. So, correct. You're saying it's the fundamental tenet of capitalism that, uh, correct, that yeah. somebody wins and somebody loses. Always. And that actually for it to be a true win-win, it, you, it would have, we'd, we'd actually live in, in communist Russia correct. and you'd only take enough margin to have paid the comrades. Correct. Right. I get you. Uh, Paul's hung up. Uh, <laughs> no, I think that's a very valid point, Mike. I think it's it's, it's it's a great point. But they talk about this. I'm going to try and find the section in, in along here where it's um, they start talking about altruism. Here we go, where uh, mutual dependence and how salespeople have this potentially cognitive dissonance around. I've sold something. So that example. Oh, actually, I've won. They've lost because they're a charity, and I've just just raked twenty percent of a. Underground margin deal. How can I live with myself and etc. etc. Well, I think it's pretty easy to reconcile that because ultimately they would have had to have bought that from somewhere or a solution from somewhere. And as long as you have delivered value in what you've done and will continue to deliver value throughout the duration, why is that not a win? Whereas somebody else might have only charged them ten points and I've seen hide a hair. And I'll give you an example of this. My one of Many lessons I can think about sales career was I was dealing with a, a piece of business for Ericsson. It was worth about three quarters of a million quid. And it was uh, to, to renegotiate their uh, services contract because the, my predecessor basically rinsed them out of selling technology. He'd moved on and then the, the, the big spreadsheet in the sky had gone, hang on a second, are we getting value here? And we went back and two with this. And the, the procurement guy in there was basically saying that, yes, he could beat me stroke us up over price, but then as, as category manager, but then his customer, the IT team or customers, wouldn't necessarily get value because, you know, ring, ring for, you know, pre-sales, whatever it might be, and I'd be rather disinclined to help because you'd squeeze the goodness out of the deal. So, you know, if as a buyer he was able to recognise that, and some are, that there is a cost and there's a value in certain things, then what's wrong with the 20% margin from good old NSPCC if we're delivering service for them? But, the, but there's little That's kids who are experiencing cruelty because of the extra margin. Come on, let talk. Steve talk. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> That's not what you're The piece I wrote here was, you know, we're still using in sales a lot of this kind of game-playing sports metaphor. Um, and actually, 
if you look at it, and that's partly because there's a misalignment from us from a sales perspective and the customer. You know, I often ask, ask salespeople, when's the sale finished? When is the sale complete? And you ask the average salesperson, they'll say either when they sign the PO or when they actually pay the uh, pay the invoice or when I get my commission. That's when the sale's complete. You ask the same question you know, from the customer perspective, when is the sale complete? And the sale is complete at the point when the when it delivers the outcomes that the customer wanted. So, you know, you guys in recruitment know, it may be the sale completed for you is when the, when the guy starts on his first day and they pay the invoice or whatever it, it yeah. might be. But actually for the customer, that sale is complete when that salesperson that you've placed is hitting quota, delivering numbers, making profit for the organization. And that might be six months, a year after when you think it's complete. So from a win-win perspective, I think... Yeah, I think it's really valid, and it's still a really valid point. Both sides can win as long as both sides get the outcomes that they set out to want to get from the output. So, yeah, if you make your 20% margin, as Paul was saying, but if the customer ends up with their outcome some point further down the line, yeah, we both win. Um, however, if you sell to it, you know, and it's only at that point, and I think it's that kind of thinking that I think salespeople need to go into, and you need to go into that kind of thinking if you're going to be more strategic, and it's not how do I win out of this, but what does my customer win look like and what are all the steps to lead up to that? And I think once you get those horizons combined, I think you start to think more win-win. Longer term. I like that, Steve. That's a really interesting thought. 